in a Bible teaching series from the New Testament book of Acts called the Spirit, Mission, and Drama. And uh, hopefully you have a Bible with you or you can go to your Bible app. And the title of today's message is A Hero Named Stephen. Stephen. You know, heroes are people who prioritize a cause, a great cause, over their own welfare. Now, the term hero might be used frivolously from time to time, but there are very real male and female heroes in our past and in our present. And the Bible says that we would do well to imitate our leaders, to imitate their faith, to look at people who are heroic and imitate them. Stephen is one such hero. He doesn't get a lot of press in the Bible, but he is a formidable character. He's sort of a transition character in the early church from Peter to Paul. He wasn't an apostle, but he was a servant, a strong preacher. And for those of you who grew up in Sunday school, you know this. Stephen was the very first Christian martyr, the very first person to die for the cause of Christ. It's a cause worth living for. And it is a cause worth dying for. And lest you think that martyrdom is obsolete, one out of every eight Christians lives under intense persecution in our world. Well, come with me today to the book of Acts, chapter 6 and 7, and we'll kind of fly over this story. I find it inspiring heroic, if you will. So Acts chapter 6, beginning verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, he performed great wonders and signs among the people, but opposition arose. Hey, you do know that when it comes to Christianity, if you're going to be a player, if you're going to carry the ball, if you will, you need to expect to get hit. Don't be shocked by it. Opposition arose. However, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia. And by the way, Cilicia, its primary city in that region was Tarsus. Know anybody from Tarsus? You do. Saul of Tarsus. So a number of people are in opposition to this great uh, statesman, preacher, teacher, Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as they spoke. They argued with him, but they could not overcome him. So then, since Stephen's speaking the truth, and they can't do anything about the truth, they go low. So they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people. They stirred up the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen. They brought him before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would have been their supreme court, the highest court there in Jerusalem. And they produced false witnesses. Aren't you grateful that you live in a time where things like that don't happen anymore? And these false witnesses testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, 
will destroy this place, this temple, and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So they, they couldn't win an argument with Stephen. He's not being argumentative. He's just teaching the truth. So they go low. They attack him. They hire people. They persuade people to come in with exaggerations, with misrepresentations, with personal attacks. Verse 15 is sort of astonishing. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. By the way, that's only occurred one other time in the Bible, and it was Moses. Isn't it interesting? They accused Stephen of being anti-God, anti-temple, and anti-Moses. And now here he is in some sort of display. I don't know, I can't, not a halo over him, but it, somehow some divine appearance just showing God's divine favor upon Stephen. Hey, here's the first thing I want you to write down today. It goes as follows. Our faith is priceless, but it is not priceless. Less. If you're going to serve the Lord in any way, if you're going to be the kind of person who takes initiative and accepts responsibility, it will come at a cost. It simply might be criticism or whatever, but it's going to come at a cost. If you're going to serve the Lord, there will be a price. There's, you can't always hit the easy button and sit in the comfy chair. I'm not saying you go out looking for trouble. I'm not saying you go out looking for opposition and persecution. But if you're clear and bold in your values and your faith, it will find you. Somebody says, well, now, do we really live in a time of persecution? Here's the way I define persecution. Anytime there is social, political, relational, physical, financial, pressure exerted upon you in an attempt to get you to compromise your Christian values and your faith. That's persecution, and you better believe it happens today. It's adult peer pressure. So what does Stephen do? They accuse him of being anti-God, anti-temple, anti-Moses. He has a chance to defend himself, but listen carefully. He does not defend himself. I'm not saying he doesn't speak. He's about to present the longest sermon, the longest speech in the book of Acts. Longer than Peter's Pentecost sermon. Don't worry, we're not going to walk through it line by line. But I do want to give you his two main points. First of all, your view of God reflects your ignorance of your own history. His critics we're saying God is at work in us and only through us. And he says, don't you know that God has always been at work outside of Palestine? He's done great work in Mesopotamia. He's done great work in Sinai. He showed his power and his glory in Egypt. And he's not relegated to one place or to this temple. And he's calling people now from all nations to come to him. And secondly, he says, and your rejection of Jesus, it's just typical for you. It's consistent with your own history. Just look at your ancestors. You rejected Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his fellow brothers. Moses, 
Moses wanted to lead your, our people out of slavery, what happened then? He was rejected twice. The first time somebody said, hey, Moses, who made you prince and king over us? The second time, they whined and grumbled against him almost every day. Oh, why did we have to leave Egypt? Take us back to Egypt. And so here's his punchline. Acts 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. Ever had anybody say, you're just like your dad, you're just like your mom, you're just like your ancestors, and this is not a compliment. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now You've even betrayed and murdered him, murdered Jesus. You who received the law that was given through angels, but you've not obeyed it. Unless you, hey, unless you think Stephen is being too harsh, remember, these are the same people, many of whom, who voted to execute Jesus. So they've been hard-hearted. They resisted the three years of the ministry of Jesus. They've been resisting now for five to seven years the ministry of the apostles. So they're hard-hearted, they're resisting, they're misleading the people. Hey, by the way, let me just kind of pause and ask you something. When someone speaks truth to you and it cuts and it offends, and by the way, just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right. Do you listen? Are you open? You can either soak it up or you can shut it out. And the members of the Sanhedrin have no idea how blessed they are to have someone speaking the truth to them. Grace and truth. I mean, hopefully they'll respond. Hopefully, they'll, they'll, they'll soften their hearts and turn to the Lord. But unfortunately, verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God, saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. By the way, this is the only time in the New Testament where, Je where Jesus is pictured standing at the right hand of God, usually seated Bible scholars wonder about this. Most people say, and I think it's true, he's standing. You know, Stephen stood for Jesus. Jesus stands for Stephen. I believe Jesus is standing. He knows what's about to happen. He's activated, and he's ready to welcome Stephen home. Stephen says, I see heaven open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Hey, here's a second thing I want to highlight. The message of Jesus, it brings both conviction and comfort. Conviction before comfort, too, my friends. God gets our attention by telling us the truth. And Stephen spoke grace and truth to the Sanhedrin. You do know that truth without grace is just hopeless. It's just 
all it is is just law. It's hopeless. But grace without truth is just sentimentalism. So verse 57, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at Stephen. They dragging him out of the city and they began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now we're introduced to the future Apostle Paul. By the way, why were they laying their coats at his feet? So they could throw harder. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Just a little sidebar here. Sometimes you'll hear someone say, you should only pray to God the Father. You know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You should only pray to God the Father. Nobody told Stephen that. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? At the cross, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Hey, let's not hydroplane over this. Let's not just pretend like this is only for Sunday school. We are taught as Christians to be full of grace and to not get into mud wrestling matches. Do you know how hard it is to be falsely accused, to be mistreated, and then to have the wherewithal? Is this even possible to have the wherewithal to pray, but Lord, forgive them. Lord, do not lay this sin to their charge. How in the world can you do that? The only way you can do it, my friends, is if you are a tunnel and not a wall. It's the only way. You've got to be a tunnel, not a wall. You see, if you're a wall and every slight, every offense, every wrong, even every perceived wrong, it just hits you and it stays there. It either sticks or it just eventually it slides down to the bottom of the wall and it putrefies and it decays and it stinks and you're a wall, you're absorbing it all. But if you're a tunnel, that junk goes through you to the Lord because the Lord says, I need you not to engage in escalating hostilities. I need you not to return evil for evil. I need you to return good for evil. And if there is any justice or retribution that needs to be repaid, I will handle it, says the Lord. Justice is mine, says the Lord. Now listen, if that were on a Hallmark card, I wouldn't give it two cents. If that were from a statue or a monument somewhere, I wouldn't give it two cents. But when the living, all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful God says, I pay attention, and justice is mine, says the Lord. But you got to be that tunnel. In other words, 
You don't need to tarnish your testimony. You don't need to tarnish your witness and your influence by engaging in tit-for-tat, low-road behavior. We can return good for evil. We don't need to mud-wrestle because people are watching. Your children are watching. Your grandchildren are watching. Your friends are watching. we got to imitate the character of Christ. E. Stanley Jones was a well-known missionary. He was criticized. He was attacked. And he got mad. And he decided he was going to write a letter in response and let his critics have it. And so he did. But before he mailed that letter, he allowed some of his wise friends to review it. One friend wrote three words, not sufficiently redemptive. In other words, you got to give people room to be redeemed and reclaimed and for relationships to be rebuilt. Hey. Here's a third thing I want you to write down, and that is the death of a Christian is the crowning moment of their life. That's true for Stephen. It will be true for you and me. It will be the crowning moment of your life. You say, well, Stephen was a martyr. He lost. He didn't lose. His martyrdom doesn't mean that evil people won or that Satan won. It means Satan lost. It means that there are Christians the globe over, in past and in present, who will choose death over defection. And we need to remember and be inspired by their conviction that they would rather die than deny Jesus Christ. The death of a Christian is the crowning moment of your life. Because for you to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. And precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And the moment you close your eyes here, you open your eyes in glory. There will never be a moment, Christian friend, when you are away from the presence of the Lord. To be absent in the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And here's a fourth thing I want you to write down. We never know the impact of our testimony before others. We just don't. Many Bible students believe that it was Stephen's martyrdom that was so instrumental in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus that it softened his heart. It raised questions. I know this later in the book of Acts when the Apostle Paul gives his testimony. Read it in Acts 22. He mentions that I was there when Stephen died for the Lord. I heard Stephen say, I see the Lord standing. I see the glory of the Lord. I heard Stephen pray, Lord, do not lay this sin to their charge. You never know who, whom you might be influencing, often without even knowing it. Sometimes your influence shines in your success, but often it shines in your duress. In times of difficulty. And here's the last thing. Number five, 
We never know what God can use to advance the gospel. We just don't. We never. Our God is a wise and creative missionary. And he wants the message of salvation, the message of salvation in Jesus to get out. And you just never know what God can use to advance the gospel. Think about this now in the early church. Here they are. One of their leaders has been murdered. And then an incredible amount of persecution breaks out. Try marketing that, folks. That's not good church marketing. Stephen's been murdered. Persecution is breaking out against all who name the name of Jesus Christ. So, uh-oh, I guess the church is going to be in shambles here, right? I guess it's going to fold. It's going to see uh, terrible days. Not at all. Never underestimate the heart and the wisdom and the providence of our great God and what he can use to propel the gospel message forward. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And look at this. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. Starting here, you're going to see an explosion of the church geographically, ethnically, how does that happen? They've been in Jerusalem. They've sort of been bottlenecked in, in Jerusalem. So how does God advance and propel the gospel forward? Answer, the murder of a really good man and increasing, escalating persecution and opposition. And only the apostles are staying in Jerusalem. Everybody else is spreading, but they're not spreading and hiding. They're spreading and they're witnessing. They're spreading in their teaching. They're spreading in their living for Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden now you're going to see the church continue to thrive. Sometimes God will use incredible times of peace. And sometimes God will use times of pain and persecution. But he is a wise and he is a creative evangelist. You know, God can use a bad back as an avenue for the gospel to spread. God can use a divorce as an avenue for you to have a conversation with someone about Jesus Christ. God can use someone who's prone to depression. God can use a bad, a really bad decision you made as an opportunity for the gospel to advance. God can use your love for basketball. I mean, my goodness, how many basketball coaches have influenced people in tremendous ways? God can use your bum knee. He can use the loss of a job. One of the best definitions of outreach I've ever heard is this. Ordinary people doing ordinary things 
with gospel intentionality. Your dog can be an opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. You take your dog for a walk. You see people, you stop, you chat, you talk. Getting a pacemaker could be an opportunity to advance the gospel. Talk to Gary McLaughlin about it. He had a pacemaker put in not too long ago. He's there before the surgeon's going to do his thing. He said, we play some music in here. What kind of music do you like? He said, I like Christian music. I want to hear Christian music. Well, let's see if we can put on some Christian, Christian music. We started, and one of the other medical workers said, oh, I love that song. Let's, they started singing along to the song. And then one of the other uh, medical workers, one of the nurses in there said, oh, yeah, I love that song too. Gary said, I'm lying there. I wanted to have Christian music going. And all of a sudden, there's a little quartet just singing right along with the music. And those in the room who were not believers, they got serenaded that day. You mean to tell me that God used the murder of a good man and escalating opposition to do something good? My friends, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called for His purpose. Now, I hope when you reflect on the story of Stephen... He'll become one of your heroes too. He's inspiring. He was a tunnel. It wasn't a wall. He was full of grace and truth, bold when he needed to be bold. But he had the spirit and the mindset that says, Lord, here am I. Use me. I'm willing to take initiative. I'm willing to accept responsibility. I'm willing to accept hardship. And if your assignment is not to the comfy chair, I'm yours. Use me. Here I am. Now, before I close, I want you to be aware of this. Every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every day, 12 church buildings, Christian churches, are attacked. Every day, on average, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted. These are numbers from the 2021 World Watch list. And the president of that group says this, you might think this is all about oppression. No, no, you don't need to think of it that way. You need to think about it in terms of Christian resilience. With these numbers, you would think that God's people are suffering so much that the church would be dying and dwindling, and that Christians would be keeping quiet, losing their faith, turning away from one another. But that's not what's happening. Instead, in living color, we see the truth of God is recorded in Scripture where He says, even in the wilderness, I will make a way. Even in a desert, I will make a way. God is at work in his people. And we get to be just part of that. And nothing beats being used by the Lord. So we'll be making your way up here. Let me just remind you that persecution comes to you as well. And anytime there's physical, 
financial, social, relational, political pressure placed on you so that you will step into the shadows, that you will lose your clarity, so that you will compromise your Christian values and witness. That's persecution. But you be strong. You be strong and courageous. It's worth it.